Hello, I'm Tom Hauser. The city of St. Louis Park finds itself the target of national outrage since its back and forth controversy over reciting the Pledge of Allegiance at meetings made headlines around the country. President Donald Trump even sounded off on the controversy on both Twitter and at the White House on Thursday. There used to be a time when you could proudly declare, I am a citizen of the United States. Now they're trying to erase the very existence of a very important word and a very important thing, citizenship. They're even coming after the Pledge of Allegiance in Minnesota. The president also tweeted Thursday he believes he can win Minnesota in 2020 and says this controversy is an example why. Tomorrow, the St. Louis Park City Council is set to revisit its decision. Brett Hofflin shows us the passionate opinions that sparked the debate this past week. From outside St. Louis Park City Hall, they recited the very words at the forefront of this controversial issue. I'm proud to be an American now, and I just don't find anything in the Pledge of Allegiance offensive. Marching inside, even interrupting council. And the immigrants have to say the pledge to get here? We're standing up as patriots, coming together, saying, you know, we love our country. Last month, the council unanimously voted to no longer recite the Pledge of Allegiance at the start of meetings. Many agreed it was an issue of diversity and wanting to make sure everyone felt welcome. As a proud American, I'm appalled that our little suburban community's meeting protocols have sparked this polarizing conversation in our community on what it means to be patriotic. The crowd challenged the decision at a study session Monday night to reconsider this move, something that doesn't include public comment. I feel like we made a mistake. While some apologized for not including the community in the decision, others stood their ground. Evidently here in Minnesota, we're playing around with their hallowed traditions. I think to take things like this away from the American people, it's very hurtful. And it feels to me like we may have missed a step there. Mayor Jake Spano believes the council's vote was premature. He wants to focus on having a conversation of returning to the pledge. My hope is, is that um, they have an opportunity to sort of say, you know, wow, we didn't think this was a big deal, but boy, it really is a big deal. So yeah, we should have a conversation about it. Ultimately, they agreed to meet again to figure out a way to engage with the community on this issue, sparking frustration and anger from the crowd. It's a no-brainer. There shouldn't and should not have even been considered. Brett Hoffland, Five Eyewitness News. The city tells us it has been inundated with phone calls and messages on social media. Many of them are verbally abusive, hostile, and harassing, but the city has not verified any credible threats in those messages. Parts of southeastern Minnesota are still dealing with the aftermath of severe flooding from late June and early July. This week, Governor Tim Walls got a first-hand look at the damage in Olmstead County. Matt Belanger has more on the lasting impact of recent storms. These are cows floating down the river. It was the video that showed all of us just how powerful fast-moving flood water can be. A herd of cows being washed down the Zumbro River. But for Ron Thompson, it wasn't video. It was real life. When we woke up in the morning shortly thereafter, we could hear the cows bellowing. So we ran out into that field. That morning, he snapped these photos of flood water a few feet deep across his land in Byron, but he told me he waded right out into that water to help about 25 or 30 cows and calves who ended up on his property get to dry land. And then the cows, they came through in deep water, 
And we ran along here, and I kept calling to them, and then they they came up towards this cornfield, and then they, they found ground. I'm really glad that I was able to help. All of that water is gone now, and Governor Tim Walz joined local officials on a tour of the area to see the lasting impact of the severe flooding in late June and early July firsthand. Washed out roads, destroyed crops, and huge piles of debris. The damage, as you can see, is pretty dramatic. Officials here in Olmsted County estimate the damage from flooding to be between $600 and $800,000, and the governor says the state has money earmarked to help pay for some of these expensive repairs. What happens when you have a catastrophic event like this, it doesn't reach the FEMA level, but it overwhelms the local officials. So they created a disaster assistance contingency account that was meant to go into effect when situations like this happen. The governor says some of the damage here will likely qualify for state help. There's a lot of damage around oh, here. Oh, yes. Thompson told me he's grateful. I would just want him to, to know that we appreciate any help that he can give to us and uh, give to Olmstead County so that we can get back. In Olmstead County, Matt Belanger, 5 Eyewitness News. State lawmakers kicked off a series of hearings aimed at reviewing how the budget is put together every two years. This follows complaints that much of this year's budget deal was negotiated in secret. Back in February, Governor Walz, House Speaker Melissa Hortman, and Senate Majority Leader Paul Gazelka promised an open and transparent process of putting a budget deal together. In the end, though, those three lawmakers negotiated nearly all of the final agreement behind closed doors. That drew a lot of criticism from rank-and-file lawmakers. So this week, a House subcommittee met to hear more from staffers about what goes into putting the budget together. They'll use that information to create potential rule changes and reforms for future legislative sessions. The goal is not only to increase transparency, but to end future sessions on time with a balanced budget. This is going to be budget-driven, and it's a, it's a complicated process, and it's one that's going to take more than just one simple fix. There's no easy fix for this. It took us a while to get here. It's going to take us a while to get out. Since 2001, these are all the years where the governor had to call a special session to finish passing a budget deal. In other words, more often than not, this is just the first of several hearings this House subcommittee has planned on the topic before lawmakers return for the 2020 legislative session in February. Minnesotans may soon have to change the way they get beer from some of the state's top craft breweries. State law says once a brewery hits 20,000 barrels sold in a year, they have to stop selling growlers in their tap rooms. Castle Danger Brewery in Duluth will end sales in October. The Minnesota Craft Brewers Guild says a handful of other breweries are also approaching the threshold. The guild says they've tried unsuccessfully to get state law changed over the past several sessions. The Minnesota Licensed Beverage Association says one of its legislative priorities is to limit what microbreweries can sell directly to the public so they can protect liquor stores. She's the first female president in the University of Minnesota's nearly 150-year history. Joan Gable took over the position earlier this month. She follows Eric Kaler, who was president for eight years. After attending her first Board of Regents meeting as president this week, she shared her priorities for the University of Minnesota. 
for a new day at the university. Joan Gable is quickly hitting her stride as the new University of Minnesota president. Reporting to the Board of Regents, she's already made moves to trim spending in her own office. I've reorganized the president's office staff with an aim not only to be responsive, but also to be lean and nimble. The University of Minnesota statewide system is huge and can be unwieldy. I'm actually very pleased to report that I don't see a lot of problems. I see a lot of opportunities. Talking to reporters after the board meeting, Gable said she'll be student-focused, whether it be providing mental health services or keeping operational costs down so tuition increases can also be kept down. We have an, an ongoing long-term strategy that I will refresh with my perspective on how to manage our overhead, manage our costs. Aside from academics, Gable says she'll entrust the athletic director to address declining attendance at football, hockey, and basketball games. I think if the athletic department is relying on me for ticket sale boosting techniques that we would have a pretty significant problem. I'm pretty pleased to be able to see that there is a, a real engagement with our athletic department, with the national conversation that's going on in all Power Five athletic departments around ticket sales and also just the overall revenue. But ultimately, Gable says her job is to make the U of M an affordable and quality experience for all students. There is always going to be tuition, so if you're going to pay it, we want it to be a good investment. Gable previously served as provost at the University of South Carolina. She's been traveling to Minnesota from South Carolina since January, getting ready for her new job. Some sad news to report from the baseball world this week. Jim Bouton passed away while in hospice care after a long illness. The former major league pitcher and author of a famous baseball book called Ball Four once testified at the Minnesota State Capitol against public financing for a new Twins baseball stadium. In many ways, his no-holds-barred Ball Four book changed the way the media covers baseball. Jim Bouton was 80 years old. Coming up next, Catherine Tanucci and Kurt Zellers will be here for political analysis. And one woman is making history by moving up the ranks in the Minnesota National Guard. A look at the ceremony celebrating her promotion and how she's making the military more diverse. A woman is making history as she moves up the ranks of the Minnesota National Guard. This week, Army Colonel Stephanie Horvath became the Guard's first openly lesbian brigadier general. And she's only the second woman ever promoted to that rank in Minnesota's Army National Guard. Congratulations. She's now officially Brigadier General Stephanie Horvath. She had stars pinned on her shoulders by her wife and her mother. And later, her two nine-year-old daughters presented her with a special flag signifying her new rank. Today means a great deal to me, but as I stand before you, I realize now that it pales in comparison to what it represents to my nine-year-old daughters. This experience will expand their horizon and possibilities for what lies ahead for them. Horvath is a trailblazer in two ways. She's only the second female general in the Minnesota Army National Guard. And she's the first who's openly lesbian. It wasn't that long ago when if you were gay and in the military, mm -hmm. there were many people trying to find ways to push you out. Right, right. And that has been my 
20 years of my 30-year career. Horvath says the military is now much more accepting of the LGBT community after years of opposition. The military is an organization that recognizes so many skills and talents in that LGBT community and it is important and it's it's great to see it coming to fruition. Horvath's skills and talents have been put to use on deployments to Kosovo and Iraq. In one case, she was the only woman in her unit of 300 soldiers. You train for something and you train day in and day out, um, but you never know if you're going to fully perform until you put into, into that position. She says those experiences will make her a better general and certainly one her wife and daughters will be proud of. Now, there is one other female brigadier general in the Army National Guard and also one in the Air National Guard here in Minnesota. Congratulations to General Horvath. As we told you earlier, the Minnesota House is trying to bring some sanity back to the state budgeting process. Here is our quote of the week. We push you to do things in an incredible short span of time and expect it to be correct when in fact there simply isn't the time to do the job that needs to be done. When we're giving targets to multiple omnibus committees in the last 24 hours and we're expecting all of these things to balance out, I, I think it's a wonder that anything gets done correctly. <laughs> that might be one of the most sane things I've ever heard <laughs> a, a politician say. It is a miracle things uh, get done at the Capitol. And both of you have been through this, Catherine Tanucci. When you were working in communications for Governor Dayton, you saw this. And Kurt Zellers, you were Speaker of the House. You were part of this. <laughs> you were part yeah. of this mess. Fault of it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, this is not the first time they've tried to take a bite out of this apple and try to solve this problem. Is this likely to result in any significant real-life changes? Well, I mean, I think in anything in life, it's always worth keeping trying. You know, keep <laughs> trying to find a solution. But a friend of mine, an accounting major I went to college with, said, he goes, I just don't get that process. You guys have a two-year budget. You're spending north of $35, $40 billion, and you try to figure it out in five months' time. But, oh, by the way, you put it on pause for a month and a half while you wait for the forecast. The system is just set up in a way that it really does lead to this. You know, you could maybe do some interim hearings on projecting out, but until you actually know when that number comes in in February, it's kind of hard to, to hijack that process. And Kurt says, you know, you have five months to do this. Really, the bulk of the work probably comes down to the last five days, and in some cases, the last five hours or five minutes. You've seen this from the governor's office perspective. It really doesn't work well for either branch, uh, the, the executive or no, the legislative. We spend, you know, some time. Of course, the governor puts out his budget proposal um, early in the session, and we, we know what he wants to do, but then we wait. <laughs> we wait for weeks and weeks and months for the legislature to be able to put something together. And just, you know, a few thoughts. It's like, I, I'm just trying to think of other states. I don't think there's a better model. Like, there's yeah. no, I, there's not many, <laughs> I can't think of one that does it better. Lots of states struggle with this and it's it is a problem that comes up every year I think part of the problem was made worse this year by the fact that the new governor and the new legislative leaders sort of promised a better uh, outcome and it didn't really turn out that way didn't quite happen that way and there's been a lot of promises made over the years and it <laughs> always ends up being the same last minute usually a special session anyway we'll see where this goes we'll continue to track that uh, let's talk about the presidential race uh, Senator Klobuchar is having a little trouble getting some traction on her campaign. She's not at the bottom of the pack, but she's not in the top tier. She's kind of been stuck in that middle. How is she going to get out of that? Right now there's some talk that 
she's just on the cusp of being, even being able to qualify for the third debates that will come up in September. Some of the news I've seen from her campaign is that she's really focusing on some of those early states. Um, and I know that she's gotten some really key endorsements in Iowa recently. And I know she's got lots of staff in New Hampshire as well. So I think part of her strategy is to, you know, do that groundwork. Um, I have also seen her on national news almost every day this week. So she's been in the headlines and she's been getting some national news. Uh, so two-part strategy there, both focused and, and, more, and broader. Because she needs to get to 2% in the polls for the debates in September, which is, doesn't sound like a lot, but it's, it's double what the threshold was for the last debates. And she's not quite there, but she's close. Well, and again, this is a problem we've discussed a, a couple of different times on here. Her problem is that she's normal and nice. Some of the things that you're hearing from these other candidates aren't normal and they're not nice. And if you want to get headlines, you, know, you go and throw a, a you know, bucket of mud in the president's face and call him all kinds of names and call him un-American and all kinds of names. You get on the news, you move up in the polls. So part of her problem is that she's good and she's normal. And you know, there are ways, though, I think that she can. I, I appreciate Catherine's comments about the groundwork because that's really where it comes down once you start getting into these primaries. But the cash and the media attention come from saying those things in debates. A lot of good things about Minnesota nice. Becoming president might not be one of those uh, things. A final thing, the truly important issue, uh, growler sales. Oh. Uh, the Minnesota liquor laws have always baffled me over the years. This is just another one because there's so many different fiefdoms that are trying to protect their turf. What's the answer here to selling growlers? Well, we've seen, Kurt and I can both point to a specific example where when people ran out of beer, things changed real quick. On the other hand, the, the amount of time it took to get Sunday sales in Minnesota is so baffling. And so things move both very slowly, but then when the beer runs out, it tends to move pretty quickly. But of course, Kurt, we are the state that brought you a congressman who brought you prohibition. So right, right. Should we be surprised by any of this? Well, the, the three-tier system is like a lot of things in government. It's antiquated. It's confusing and if very few people know how it actually works. Mm -hmm. Once you, you know, get that out of the way and just say, you know what, we've got a great problem here. More Minnesotans and more people around us want to drink our beer, our craft beer in particular. So let's raise the cap. I understand the, the retailers wanting to be a part of that, but if you've got good product, then people will buy it in their retail outlet and they'll go to a brewery and buy it. It's a great problem to have. Just fix it. Yeah, this well, is the real tragedy time. That's <laughs> with presidential politics. I, I saved the most important stuff for last, clearly. <laughs> Kurt and Catherine, thanks for being here. Coming up next, Mike Erlinson and Andy Brem will be here for Face Off. We're going to talk the Pledge of Allegiance in two minutes. Welcome back. Time now for Face Off. Joining me today, Mike Erlinson and Andy Brem. Thank you both for being here. Everybody else has weighed in on the Pledge of Allegiance controversy in St. Louis Park, so you guys might as well, uh, too. This, uh, Mike, I'll, I'll start with you. This seems like kind of an unforced error, and, and one that was a vote that was taken in kind of cavalier fashion. Yeah, let's just get rid of the pledge, and it was a five-to-nothing vote. There were a couple people missing, but it shocked me that no one said, well, wait a minute, do we want to think about this a little bit? Did that surprise you? Well, it certainly, I think, surprised uh, me, but I think it maybe surprised everybody on the city council, too. The, the mayor in the segment that you had on earlier said it pretty well. Look, we probably moved too fast on this, should have given it a little bit more thought, and we're going to sit back and, you know, take another look at it. I mean, that's the right thing to do. 
You know, fundamentally, the flag is the symbol of freedom, not just in our country, but around the entire world, right? And so having a pledge of allegiance of some sort at a public meeting that elected officials uh, are representing their citizens, I think is actually a good thing. Um, and, you know, it gets to the definition of what they're charged to do, which is defend and protect all people's liberty, right? That's fundamental to our country. So I think it's actually a good thing. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to find a way to be against liberty and justice for all, which is the, 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 the premise here. And... And it just seems, even though there's some city councils, like Edina and Minneapolis, that don't do it, to my knowledge, they didn't take a vote where they came out and unanimously said, yeah, let's do away with this. Well, I'm presuming that those city council members are big Trump supporters because they gave them a huge advantage uh, in this state uh, and across the country. I mean, this is ridiculous. I mean, having the mayor say that we need to have a conversation about the pledge, we should be having conversations about public safety, about schools, about property taxes, not whether or not we should say the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, of course we should. I mean, should we have a conversation about the flag? Uh, it can go on and on. People are really tired of this kind of political correctness, and they're playing right into the president's hands. Now, the election is a long way off, but President Trump says, yeah, look, this is one of those issues I'm sure he's going to seize on it for the next year, even if it goes away here in the next month. Uh, does it give him any kind of an advantage in these polarized times? Well, I don't know if it gives him an advantage, but I don't think it's going to go away, right, as many people predict, because, you know, when these sorts of things pop up, Donald Trump doesn't easily put them aside, right? So, uh, you know, I think Andy said it well, right? There are more important things to do than have a debate and vote on not having the Pledge of Allegiance said before a city council meeting, right? It would have been completely different had they just stopped saying it. Nobody probably would have noticed for better or for worse, right? But, you know, this is um, a controversy that I don't think anybody wants to keep talking about it, but I suspect we will. Well, I know we'll be talking about it tomorrow because the city council's taking it up again tomorrow, so we'll, of course, have coverage on Five Eyewitness News. Uh, Another issue that has raised some eyebrows uh, this year, uh, this week, the Jimmy Fallon show, uh, $267,000 from the Minnesota uh, TV and Film Board uh, to get him to come here for the Super Bowl. Andy, a lot of people say he was going to come here whether we gave him any money or not. Uh, was this an unwise expenditure of taxpayer funds? Well, I mean, first of all, let's remember we just had a legislative session where Democrats said we needed more revenue, and then this kind of wasteful, wasteful spending is going on. I mean, of course we didn't have to subsidize them to have that show here. Uh, NBC had the rights to the Super Bowl. I mean, businesses don't make decisions based on what kind of subsidies they get. I mean, Jimmy Fallon made 150 some thousand dollars Good for him. But taxpayers shouldn't be subsidizing that. Final word. Uh, you know, I think that this is a good debate to be had at the legislature about how, many, how much public funds should go into enticing businesses to come here, whether it's the Tonight Show or, or frankly, building the uh, U.S. Bank Stadium that hosted the Super Bowl, right? The public supports a lot of things. Uh, those things usually have an economic impact benefit, as this was claimed to have about a $3 million economic impact to the state of Minnesota, so well, it was probably a wash. Wouldn't be surprised if there's a hearing coming up very soon about this very matter. Mike and Andy, thanks for being here. The U.S. women's soccer team just won the World Cup, and now they're getting ready for a cross-country victory tour. Coming up, where and when you'll be able to see them in action here in Minnesota. The U.S. women's soccer team will stop at Allianz Field in St. Paul. Our sources tell us they will play an exhibition game on September 3rd. The official announcement will be made soon. That's all the time we have for now. We'll see you again next week for At Issue.